Uh, We're going to uh, read from Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 29. But before we read that, I realize we're uh, parachuting into the middle of Deuteronomy. So just to uh, remember the context, this book is essentially a series of sermons. Yes, it's law, but it's given as sermons. Moses is preaching to the Israelites as they're camped east of the Jordan River, ready to enter the promised land of Canaan. And in the opening chapters, Moses' text has been the Israelites' own history. That's what he's been using as the basis of his instruction. There's a lot to be learned from the failures and the successes of that history. Moses has reminded the Israelites, he's reminded them how their parents' generation came right to the edge of the promised land, but then turned back in unbelief. They didn't believe the Lord was faithful enough or strong enough to overcome the big people and the large city walls in Canaan. And because of their unbelief, that entire generation then died in the desert, with only a couple of exceptions. For 38 years, the Israelites tramped around the wilderness until the unbelieving generation was gone. And then, in Moses' sermon, he reminded the current generation what they had seen and what they had experienced of God's faithfulness and strength. After the old generation died, the new generation had responded to God's renewed call. They'd marched toward Canaan again, and God gave them victories over the big people and the large city walls that their parents had been so afraid of. If you can picture a map of the area in your mind, they traveled up the east side of the Dead Sea, passing through the land of the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And then they took possession of the land occupied by Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. And now as we pick up today, Moses is reflecting on what happened after those victories against Sihon and Og. We're going to read from chapter 3, verse 12, down to the end of the chapter in verse 29. I'm reading from the NIV. Moses says, Of the land that we took over at that time, I gave the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory north of Aror by the Arnon Gorge, including half the hill country of Gilead together with its towns. The rest of Gilead, and also all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The whole region of Argob in Bashan used to be known as a land of the Rephaites. Jer, a descendant of Manasseh, took the whole region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites. It was named after him, so that to this day Bashan is called Havoth-Jer. And I gave Gilead to Machir. But to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory extending from Gilead down to the Arnon Gorge, the middle of the gorge being the border, and out to the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites. Its western border was the Jordan and the Arabah, from Kinnereth to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. I commanded you at that time... The Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But 
all your able-bodied men armed for battle must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. However, your wives, your children, and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you. Until the Lord gives rest to your fellow Israelites as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. At that time, I commanded Joshua, You have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you, The Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across. And will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. This is God's word. And it focuses on the responsibility of God's people. It challenges Israel and us to fight for others. And as we look at this, we'll see that it parallels the passage Falco read earlier from Philippians, that passage that began with these words, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of the others. Those New Testament words call us to fight for others. And here in Deuteronomy, we see those words worked out in the lives of the Israelites. Moses shows we're to fight for others when we're prospering and comfortable and when we're deprived and disappointed. First of all, in verses 12 to 20, the challenge is fight for others when you're prospering and comfortable. Fight for others when you're prospering and comfortable. There were 12 tribes in Israel, all descended from Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And the land originally promised to the 12 tribes was on the west side of the Jordan River. But before Israel crosses the Jordan, two and a half tribes are given land east of the river. The general area is referred to as Gilead. And in these verses, Moses describes how he gave this land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. 
Now, I don't see any indication that was a bad thing. As it's presented to us, it is a blessing from God. These two and a half tribes had moved forward in obedience to God. They'd shown faith in God when he called Israel to face Sihon and Og in battle. These two and a half tribes fought in those battles. And now they receive the land of Gilead as an inheritance from God. Moses divides the territory of Sihon and Og between them. So their fight is already won. Their enemies are defeated. They have arrived. If you glance down to verse 19, Moses says to them, I know you have much livestock. In this culture, that's an indication of wealth. These two and a half tribes not only have land, they have livestock to fill it with. The ranch is theirs and it's buzzing. Probably this livestock came from the plunder taken from Sihon and Og. And that means these two and a half tribes have it made. Of course, they might still want to stroll down to the banks of the Jordan and sing a few songs as the nine and a half tribes cross the river to claim their inheritance. But surely at this point... Once they've sang their songs and waved goodbye to the others, surely the two and a half tribes can get on with enjoying the prosperity and the comfort God has given them. Of course, they want to keep up with the news from across the river. In their prayer meetings, they'll certainly mention the nine and a half tribes. They're, after all, part of the same family. But they can't reasonably be expected to do more than that. Can they? Well, look what Moses says to the two and a half tribes in verse 18. The Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men armed for battle must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. Whoever your wives, your children, and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your fellow Israelites as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. One of the most significant themes in the book of Deuteronomy is the theme of brotherhood. I think that's the best word that we have to get at the sense of it. Words like congregation or even family don't quite capture the strength of it. A brotherhood stands together, shoulder to shoulder through thick and thin. If necessary, a brotherhood fights together as one. The perfect motto for a brotherhood is one for all and all for one. And that is what God's people are to be. Not a loose collection of vaguely like-minded people. Not a group of acquaintances who check in with each other every so often. God's people are to be a brotherhood. And Moses' words show us being part of a brotherhood involves costly commitment. The two and a half tribes are to fight with the nine and a half. Until all twelve tribes possess their inheritance. And in fact, the principle seems to be that the already prospering don't just join the fight across in Canaan, they are to lead the fight 
In verse 18, Moses says, The warriors from the two and a half tribes are to cross over ahead of the other Israelites. They're to be the shock troops, the front line. So there's no sense whatsoever of, I'm all right, and it turns out all right for you too. Now those all right lead the line until everyone's all right. Until the last battle is over. Then we all enjoy prosperity and comfort together. And doesn't this give color and shape to Paul's words in Philippians? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain concern. Rather, humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. One writer puts it this way, speaking about God's people and how God's people are to be different from every other people. It's a little bit of a long quotation, but I think it's helpful. He says, sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. Gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us in community. The life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is highly personal, but never merely individual. Always there is a family, a tribe, a nation, church. The gospel pulls us into community. One of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I. Our instead of my. Us instead of me. The book of Deuteronomy could be called the gospel according to Moses. It's full of the good news of God's grace and salvation. And here we see the difference that good news makes in Moses' context. How it changes me, us. And if we think about applying this to our own context, doesn't it show that Wealth and a wonderful home, maybe the free time that comes with retirement, those are not blessings to be hoarded up for ourselves and used for ourselves. They are prosperity and comfort we can put to work helping others in their lack, their need, in the battles they are facing. And like the two and a half tribes, those of us blessed with the most prosperity and comfort should probably be leading the line when it comes to standing with others in their battle. It's simply not God's will for us to sit in our own equivalent of Gilead, enjoying our own well-being, while our brothers and sisters are left to fight for their lives out there somewhere. From the beginning, God's plan for his people has been that they stand together and fight their battles together. It has not been God's plan for his people to luxuriate in their own comfort. While those brothers and sisters face bereavement and temptation and depression and illness, unemployment, spiritual doubt, whatever other battles come along, 
Church is not just about me and God. It's also about ministering to one another. And I realize you know that already. Of course you do. But this passage reminds us we're in this together. We are united in Christ. We are a brotherhood. Called to bear one another's burdens and fight side by side. And Christ himself is the greatest example of this. Because he did what we are called to do. And he did it to a degree we will never be able to grasp. If the two and a half tribes had comfort and prosperity east of the Jordan in Gilead, how much more did the Son of God have those things at his Father's side in heaven? But Philippians says, Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Isn't that the ultimate example of what Paul meant earlier in that passage when he talked about not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others? Isn't this the ultimate example of what the two and a half tribes did in a small way when they left Gilead to lead the fight over in Canaan? The Son of God enjoying all the prosperity and comfort of heaven, good things that were His by right, yet He came to join us in our lack, to lead the battle for us so we could enter into our inheritance. When Jesus calls us to set aside our comfort and fight for others, he's asking us to follow him in something he has already done in spades. The second part of this passage challenges us in a different way. And if we get the idea of helping others when we're prosperous and comfortable, these verses might seem to come from another world. They're so countercultural for us. The challenge of verses 21 to 29 is to fight for others when you're deprived and disappointed. Fight for others when you're deprived and disappointed. Back in chapter 1, Moses recalled how along with the previous generation of Israelites, God had refused Moses himself entry into the land of Canaan generation had been denied entry because of their unbelief. And because of Moses' own unbelieving behavior at that time, God said, you shall not enter it either. That was 38 years ago, as things stand. And what has Moses done for those 38 years? Sulked? Nurtured his own grievances? Hidden in a cave? No, he has patiently led the Israelites until his own generation was all dead. And then he marched at the head of the new generation as they fought Sihon and Og. And Moses did that knowing all the while he was leading these people to a blessed place he would never experience for himself. 
And here, as he looks back on the recent victories over Sihon and Og, Moses speaks about his own excitement in the aftermath of those victories. Look down to verse 23. At that time I pleaded with the Lord, Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. Moses is an old man now, and he's excited by what God has begun to do. After 38 years of defeat and gloom, trudging around the wilderness, things have begun to move. The Lord is beginning to show his greatness. The land is within touching distance. Surely the Lord might review Moses' situation and let him set foot in Canaan. 38 years of faithfulness. Maybe God will reward that with a taste of the promised land. And Moses doesn't ask with any arrogance. He's not demanding it of the Lord. Yes, he pleads, but he pleads as the Lord's servant. Please, Lord, just let me taste a little bit of the blessing you have for this people. But God says no. That's a final no. Look at the middle of verse 26. The Lord said, that is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes since you are not going to cross this Jordan. God says you can look, Moses, but you're not going to taste it. You're not going to cross the river and that is final. What a bitter pill. And it's all the more bitter because it was the unbelief of the Israelites and their persistent grumbling and complaining that wore Moses down to the point where he did what he did 38 years before. Acting for a moment like he was God, striking the rock with a staff and providing water for the people instead of obeying God and giving the glory to God. Of course, Moses made his decision No one forced him to do what he did. He was responsible for it. But the fact remains, it was the Israelites themselves who tempted Moses to do what he did. His deprivation and his disappointment is partly due to his own sin and partly due to the people around him. It's not all his own fault. And that makes the bitter pill even more bitter. And it's not fair. Isn't that our reaction? Probably not out loud. But don't we have the thought in our heads? It's just not fair on Moses to be denied the blessing of Canaan. Didn't he lead the people out of Egypt? Didn't he soldier on, leading them for all of those miserable years in the desert? Why doesn't God just let him in? Doesn't he deserve it? Why is God like this? 
That may be our reaction, at least for a moment, but it's not how Moses reacts. He has asked the Lord, he has asked as a servant, not only has a right to the blessing, he asked as a servant, and when God says no, Moses responds as a servant still. No doubt he's bitterly disappointed. But what does he do? He rises himself to deliver God's instruction to these people who will enter Canaan. The sermons in this book are delivered in the midst of Moses' own bitter disappointment. But instead of wallowing in it, he pours himself into preparing these people to flourish in a place he will never go. And when he's not preaching these sermons, in his downtime, he's preparing Joshua to lead the people in. That's what God tells him to do here in verse 28. Commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. And if you glance back up to verses 21 and 22, you see an example of Moses doing that. Calling Joshua encouraging him not to be afraid, to move forward, trusting the Lord. Moses' own hopes have not been fulfilled. But he gives himself still to fighting for the future of this people. And he faithfully encourages and strengthens Joshua. And this is what you and I are called to do. To fight for others even when we're deprived and disappointed. Not to focus on the fairness or unfairness of our situation as we see it. Not to pour our energy into forever lobbying God to give us the thing he has denied us. Not to focus our prayers and energy into grasping after the prosperity and comfort we don't have. And not to retreat from God and his people to sulk and nurse our wounds in our own little cave of disappointment. Instead of those things, even in our loss and sadness, we're called to do what we can to strengthen and encourage those around us. To help them move forward in their battles even if it means God leads them into blessing that he never gives us. Isn't this getting at the heart of what it means to be a brotherhood? Isn't it showing us a new depth to Paul's words in Philippians when he talks about not looking to our own interests but each of us to the interests of the others? And isn't this what Jesus himself did? Summarized in that same passage in Philippians. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. We've seen in Deuteronomy how Moses pleaded with God in prayer about altering the death sentence he'd been given. And here in Philippians, the words obedient to death are referring to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he pleaded with God about his death sentence, the deprivation that lay ahead of him, 
Mark tells us Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Meaning the cup of suffering Jesus would have to drink on the cross. Jesus asked. His father's answer was no. And what did Jesus do? He rose from his knees and went willingly to the cross. And if Moses' death outside Canaan was partially because of the people's sin, Jesus' death on the cross was totally because of the people's sin. One of our songs says, On the cross, Jesus was suffering to save the lost. He fights for breath. He fights for me. When he received his father's final no in Gethsemane, Jesus didn't slink off to bemoan the injustice of it. He submitted willingly to the cross to fight and win the battle you and I could never win. He fought for us till his last breath and his last breath brought victory. His death defeated sin and death and hell. And so when Jesus now calls you and me to fight for others, even in the midst of our own deprivation and disappointment, he's asking us to follow him in something he has already done in spades. Are you single and you don't want to be? Because you've lost the spice you loved? Or you never had the spice you wanted? Has your career not turned out like you dreamt it would? Has your health not stood up like you hoped it would? Have your finances not gathered momentum like you expected them to? Have your friends not stood by you like they promised they would? Is your family not what you prayed it would be? There are many ways we can miss out on things we wanted, good things. There are dozens of ways life can disappoint us. And the Bible doesn't deny that. But it does ask us how we're going to respond to that disappointment. Are we going to spend the rest of our lives spinning the wheels of our disappointment? Playing our own sad little song on our own little violin? over and over again? Or will we follow the example of our Savior? And the example of Moses before him, as he turned from his own disappointment at missing out on Canaan and worked to prepare Joshua and prepare the people so they'd make the most of the things God had for them. And here's the beautiful thing about this. Yes, Moses missed out on Canaan. He missed out on a significant blessing on this earth. But Moses did not miss out on God's greatest blessing. The book of Hebrews says Moses, along with the other Old Testament people of God, had an even higher goal than Canaan. As precious as that hope was for Moses, he and his Old Testament Compatriots were longing, Hebrews says, for an even better country. 
a heavenly one. And Moses has not missed out on that blessing. That eternal, incomparable blessing is his. And it's his for the same reason it's yours and mine. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself to death on a cross and was then exalted by his Father to the highest place. Today Jesus Christ is risen, he is Lord, and all of his people share the eternal life he won at the cross. So today you and I can deal with deprivation, we can deal with loss and disappointment, not because we're made of stone, And nothing ever gets to us. No, we can deal with those things and even help others at the same time because we know there are greater blessings ahead of us. Blessings that will make all of our losses and our disappointments pale in comparison. And those future blessings are there for us because our Savior fought for us all the way to his last breath. So I encourage you this week, if things are nice and rosy for you, don't be so in love with your prosperity and comfort that you hold back from your brothers and sisters in Christ. They need you to stand with them and enter into their battles alongside them. And if this is a hard and unpleasant period in your life, don't let your losses and disappointments consume you. Remember the greater things that are still ahead of you. And as you remember, commit to helping your brothers and sisters to press on into what God has for them. I think it would be helpful just to take a moment of quiet before we go and respond in song. Let's just take a moment to be quiet and consider what that means for each of us personally. Let's just speak to God. He knows our situation. So let's respond to Him and recommit ourselves to Him in whatever way we need to. Father, we thank You for Jesus. Our hope is in Him and in the strength of His Holy Spirit. We ask that you will help each of us to follow His example. Whether that's being willing to serve others in a way that means we're not holding on to our own prosperity. Or whether it means fighting alongside others even in the midst of our own disappointment. Help us as your people. Amen.